What's up, family of God? What is going on? I hope you're excited to be here. I'm excited to be here. It's such a privilege to be able to be gathered together as the family of God uh, once again. Uh, we've been doing this since Easter, and it's been just the, the best after over a year of not being able to gather together again. This is just amazing. I'm so, so grateful for the opportunity that we have to, re to recover our nature as a church and our function as a church. Um, I don't, actually don't even remember what Isaac just said. If you don't know me, my name is Lorenzo. I'm the lead pastor here. I'm not the regular teaching pastor. That's Pastor Ryan, and he's on vacation this week, so you guys have to suffer through me uh, this morning. But here's the beauty. It's not about the preacher of the word. It's about the preached word, right? All right, let's go with that one. <laughs> not that it's not true. That's actually where the power is, right? That's where the authority is. And the Spirit empowers and enables and enlightens and illumines and reveals and exposes God's revelation to us. And the Spirit testifies to the Father and draws us to the Father. And so that's what we want to do this morning. As Pastor Isaac said, we are in Ephesians um, going through this series that we're calling Collective again this morning. We're coming to uh, chapter 4. And last week we looked at what I would describe as Paul's, uh, the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter, Paul's pastoral prayer for the church. And this week, what we're going to be looking at in the first part of chapter 4 is Paul's pastoral uh, vision for the church. And so uh, I'm looking forward to getting into that and what that pastoral vision that he has for the church, which I want to steal for us and for us to seriously consider and contemplate this morning is that we would walk worthy of our calling, maintain our unity, fulfill our ministry, and grow in maturity. So Ephesians chapter 4, go there in your Bibles. If you've got a real Bible, I don't hear any rustling pages. Everyone's got a phone these days where they get onto their Bible app, which is cool because I totally get it. can't remember the last time I actually preached from an actual physical Bible. Does that make me a bad Christian and a bad pastor? I hope not. All right, Ephesians chapter 4. Here we go, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he has not that the, he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
So, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Lord, it is such a privilege to be able to get, be gathered in your name, to be in the word this morning. With, as a church family, I pray, God, that you would do a work in our hearts this morning. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would in, empower me and enable me in a way that is beyond my natural giftings and abilities for the sake of your purposes, for the sake of your objectives, for the building up of the body of Christ, for the edification of our church, for... Um, sound doctrine to be proclaimed, for the truth to be revealed. Uh, Lord, just have your way in this place. May there be a sense of, of, of openness and freedom and just all that we, uh, uh, to receive all that you have for us, Lord. We just pray against anything that would distract us, that would uh, seek to disrupt your work this morning. And Lord, we just, we recognize that you are our king, our allegiance is to you, our loyalty is to you, and we want to spend time with you this morning and understand what you are calling us to. So be with us now, we pray in your name. Amen. All right. What I would like you to do this morning is think about someone you really care about. It might be a family member, it might be a best friend, it might be your entire family. Maybe it's not your entire family. I don't know, that's weird. But think about someone you really care about, someone that you care about deeply. It might be your children, it might be your spouse, whatever it is. Think about that person and think about how much you love them and think about what you want for them, what you want for their future, what you desire for them, your hopes and your dreams for them. There's these hopes and these desires and these dreams that you have for them because you love them so much. I want you to think about that. What kind of thoughts are coming into your mind? What kind of things do you want for this person or these people that you love so much, that you care so much about? What we get the opportunity to do this morning is sort of see Paul's pastoral heart. You see the love and the care that he has for the church in Ephesus. He loved this church deeply. And he had spent three years with the church in Ephesus. More, more time in Ephesus with the church and with the believers there than he had spent in any other church that he had planted. So they have a very special place in his heart. And he loves them. And this morning, as I mentioned earlier, we get to see his pastoral heart as he expresses his pastoral vision for them. And we see that beginning in uh, chapter 4 and verse 1 where it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So that's the first part of his pastoral vision is that they would walk worthy. Now it says here in, in verse 1 that he's a prisoner. So he's not with them. He's separated from them. He's, he's not in their midst. He doesn't have the opportunity to be around them. And so he's not able to see how things are going. He's not able to see what will transpire in the near future. 
And so there's an urgency in his writing here, and he even uses that word, I urge you. There's an urgency in this appeal to them. And we see that pastoral heart of his, this urge and this calling to walk worthy of their calling. And what is their calling? What their calling is, is really everything that we have already discussed, which in other words is everything that he has already communicated to them through the first three chapters of this letter. Paul has already communicated, and we've looked at their identity in Christ, how they've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, given the seal of the Holy Spirit, how Jesus is the head of the church. He reminds them that they were dead in their trespasses and their sins, but God, who was rich in mercy, made them alive in him. He reminds them that they've been saved by grace, not by doing good, not by their works, and that the salvation that they have received and the grace of God is a gift of God. He tells them that they were once separated and alienated, but now they've been reconciled. And now they've been made fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And he reminds them that they are being built up together as a holy temple, the dwelling place of God. He talks about how the Jews and the Gentiles, Gentiles being non-Jewish people, how they've been brought together and made one and how even the Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jewish followers of Jesus. They are also, they are part of the church. Paul prays for them, that they would be strengthened with power through the Spirit, and that Christ would dwell in their hearts, and that they, the church, would be rooted and grounded in love, and that they would comprehend the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of God's love. What is their calling? To walk all of that out, to live that out. That is their calling and that is our calling, to walk out and to live these things out. And when it talks about that they would be worthy of their calling, that they would walk worthy, that word worthy there is not speaking of being good enough in a worthy sense of being good enough, but worthy is speaking of in a way that is suitable or in a way that is fitting. So a way that is suitable for your calling or the way that is, a way that is uh, suitable uh, for your calling, in a way that matches up and aligns with your calling. Live consistently with your calling. Notice what he doesn't tell them to do regarding their calling and regarding ultimately uh, all that he has for them. He doesn't say work for it. He doesn't say strive to attain it. And they're not to attempt to earn favor with God in any way. And so much of what he's already communicated is what God has already done for them. We went through several examples of, of all these things that God had already done for them. And it wasn't about what they had to do for God. is what God had already done for them. And he calls them to live in accordance with these things that God had already done for them. So he calls them to walk worthy. That's the first part of his pastoral vision for them. The second part of his pastoral vision for them is that they would maintain their unity. Look with me in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another, uh, sorry, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, verse six, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What is really interesting about what he says here about their unity in verse three, it says they are to maintain their unity. But the thing is, we can only maintain what we already have, right? You can't maintain something that you don't already possess. My family and I right now, we are uh, in the process of looking for a dog. Not because we lost a dog, but because we don't have a dog and we've decided we want one. And we're going through the process of trying to figure out what kind of dog we're going to get. And we're researching breeds. And some of you who are dog owners, I've talked to you about your dogs, about the pros and cons and what would be suitable for my kids and all that kind of stuff. And uh, my kids are a little bit obsessed with finding a dog. Maybe I am too. We go to dog parks and we hang out at the dog park and we stay on the other side of the fence and we just like look and we just covet. And uh, we ask for God's forgiveness afterwards. But we just look at all these dogs running around and playing and it's like everything's in slow motion and there's like, you know, you know, I don't know. It's like this dream sequence for us. I don't know. My wife's not super stoked on the idea. So you could pray for her that she sort of figures it out. Um, but like I said, we're still in the process of looking for a dog. Now, how weird would it be if this afternoon when I get home after the service, and, and the whole idea, and maybe I should set this up properly, the whole idea is that if we get a dog, guess who's going to take care of it? My kids. That was the deal, especially our oldest, because she's nine now, and it's time for her to take some responsibility in life, right? So it's going to be her dog. But how weird would it be if I get home, and I go up to Jaslyn, my nine-year-old, and I say, hey, baby. Um, did you feed the dog today? Did you take the dog out for a walk so he can get his exercise? How weird would it be if I said that? She would look at, look at me like I'm completely nuts because she can't take care of or maintain a dog that we don't have. Now, unlike our, my kids and my family where we don't yet have a dog, the church does possess the unity of the spirit. And that's why Paul is telling them not to create unity, not to um, make unity. He's telling them to maintain the unity of the Spirit. English theologian uh, G.B. Caird, speaking of church unity, he said this, it is not a task to be achieved or an object of aspiration, but a fact given in the gospel, inherent in the nature of the church and its membership, guaranteed by the one spirit who inspires it, the one Lord who governs it, the one God who is the source of its life. So the unity of the spirit is not something that Paul is saying to the church in Ephesus that they could create. He's telling them to maintain it. Why? Because it's still something that they could mess up. Keep in mind, and we've been over this already in previous weeks, this was a very diverse church. And I mentioned earlier this convergence of uh, and the makeup of the church of the Jewish community and the Gentile community, the non-Jewish uh, community, coming together as one, being brought together as part of one family, God's family. But it's not like 
you know, Jewish believers had their church over here, and Gentile believers had their church over there. They came from two very, very different worlds. And as you can imagine, and other passages in Scripture reveal this to be true, that it got very complicated at times. But Paul is exhorting them here to maintain their unity. In this last year, it's been an, a mess of a year, right? We all know that. But the unity of the American church has been tested. We've experienced significant disruption and upheaval in the church. We've been unable, and we are like everybody else. Churches across the country have been, and around the world, I guess, have been unable to gather and function as they normally would. And on top of that, during this weird time where we can't function according to our nature to be a gathering community, a gathering family of God, on top of all of that, We've experienced and we've seen throughout our country possibly unprecedented division around matters of politics. We've seen division over matters of race. We've seen churches that have closed down. Pastors have left the ministry. And the churches that remain are facing a lot of challenges and collective church is included in that. But with all this talk about unity, it should be noted that unity and oneness does not mean sameness. Unity and oneness does not mean sameness. Think about marriage. If you're married, you totally know what I'm talking about. If you're not married, I'm sure you can figure it out and understand what I'm saying. Two different people come together not to be the same, but to be one. We've got a couple over here that is engaged, about to be married in the next month. <laughs> if you guys don't know already, which you probably do, it's about oneness. It's not about sameness. And here's the thing, in marriage, and I have been guilty of this, we err when we come together as one and expect sameness. One of the biggest ways that I've failed in my marriage is that very thing, expecting sameness. I, I feel like I fully embrace the concept of oneness, that we are now one, the two has become one. But... I had the, and adopted the perspective of sameness where I didn't, I, I, I would overlook the reality of what my responsibility is to my wife as a different person than me. That doesn't change the fact that we are one, but we are not the same. I can and I should celebrate the fact that we are one, but I need to remember that we are not the same. Or even think about, you know, what we were just doing a second ago. The band was up here, and we were worshiping the Lord together. But think about the unity of a band. Different instruments, different parts are being played. One song. 
And even think about the fact that we as a congregation are joining in with them in that song. Multiple voices. There's unity there. But each of our voices sounds different than the other. We have different vocal ranges. Again, there's different types of instruments that are being played. Unity, but not sameness. I want to look at, um, in verse 2 here, the qualities that help us to maintain unity. Paul, he's using these words here that are interesting. He speaks of humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Are these the kinds of qualities and are these the kinds of things that you think that you would need to live out and exemplify with people that are not the same as you? Probably. Think about the role of these things when we are trying to maintain unity when we are not the same. Humility. That should be obvious. What's interesting, though, in the way that Paul is including this here in the context of this is that in the Greco-Roman world, humility was regarded as an attribute of a very weak person. Gentleness, this sense of self-control and kindness, exhibiting those things. You think it's good if you're in a disagreement with someone and you don't have the same perspective that they do, that you conduct yourself with gentleness? Do you think by conducting yourself with gentleness, it could help maintain unity? Patience, being slow to anger, uh, remaining calm under pressure. Do you think that patience can possibly maybe sort of be a good thing that might help maintain unity where there should be unity? And then... Bearing with one another in love also should be quite obvious. But here's the thing, is that Paul is not a naive idealist assuming that everyone was going to get along all the time. And so he tells them, bear with one another in love. Bear with them. Bear with them in love. These are the qualities that maintain unity, Paul says. You know, when we consider the state of American evangelicalism, it may be hard for us to grasp how big of a deal this is. Because when the going gets tough, it's common for us to just get going. And something happens, our feelings are hurt, we get offended, we disagree about something, and we just dip. And like, okay, I'm done with this church community. I'm going to go across the way, and I'm going to be a part of that church community. And we have this, like, tendency to um, have this sort of grass is greener mentality. And what we're lacking is a sense of unity and oneness and commitment to a church family. It's significantly lacking in in the American church today. There's no sense of belonging. There's no sense of like even disagreeing and fighting to agree to come to a conclusion because you care passionately about your church family and about the Lord's work. We're just quick to like just cut the cord and that, that's it and we're done and we bail. And we're not immune from that happening within our church and that has happened here. So yeah, our church isn't perfect. I hate to break it to you. I know you all thought that. 
You're laughing because you know it's true. <laughs> Our church isn't perfect. And if you're new, I want you to know that. If you're a newcomer and the collective church is this new thing and maybe you're here for the first time this morning, let me just tell you right here, right now, adjust your expectations if you think that we have it all figured out or if you're hoping that maybe this is a church that does have it all figured out, that there isn't drama, that there isn't discord at times, that there isn't divisions at times. We are a family. What kind of family do you know where none of those things exist? If you figure it out, I want to be a part of that family. It doesn't exist. And the Holy Spirit has not made a mistake by communicating very clearly in Scripture that the church is a spiritual family. It means we bear with one another in love. It means we exemplify humility and patience and gentleness. These are the things that we are called to. And here's the thing. This is why it matters. Maintaining our unity is a gospel issue. It's not just for the sake of peace. It's not just, just so we can get along. And this can be a pleasant experience for us all this morning. Whether it's at our service or just to be a part of this community and the other rhythms that we have. It's not just so that we will enjoy our time together. We are called to unity and to maintain unity because unity is a gospel issue. Because the gospel does not just save us. It's what actually makes us a family. The church is a gospel-made family. And there's a duality in the reconciling work of the gospel. We looked at that in recent weeks about how it is the, the work of the gospel is both vertical and horizontal. And so this is Paul's pastoral vision for the church, that they would walk worthy, that they would maintain their unity in the spirit. And now, number three, that they would fulfill their ministry. Look with me at verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And I got to be honest, and maybe you caught that. It's almost like Paul like slips into another dimension here and goes on like this weird rabbit trail. It's like, okay, all the way through, okay, I'm tracking with you, I'm tracking with you. It's like, what is going on here? He quotes Psalm 68, and even verses 9 and 10 are even translated as being parenthetical. But scholars speculate on the interpretation of these verses. And believe me, I had to do some digging this week. It's like, how do I make sense of this? And I read commentaries by super smart people, and nobody agrees. <laughs> I'm totally okay with that. I'm totally okay with that. But... What is clear in this section here is that it's in reference to Jesus. We know that he is the one that descended. He is the one that ascended. And as he ascended, he was exalted. And he gives gifts to the church in the form of people who serve in various ways. And we see that in verse 11. Let's check that out. 
and he gave gifts. Uh, sorry, sir, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints so that the church can be awesome and grow into a mega church and everyone just loves to sit back and have all their needs met. <laughs> nope. Sorry for the curveball. I know that probably really threw you off. So sneaky. But he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints, verse 12, for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Thank you for the ding-ding back over here. Appreciate that. So, wait a minute. I know chapter 2 describes us as being uh, saints. Uh, it talks about um, citizens with all the saints. I know, I know that, that was just recently, we looked at that recently. But it sounds like Paul is saying that we're the ones that do the work of the ministry and build up the body. He is. But I thought that's what the staff did. Nope. Not even close. This alters and shifts our paradigm. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers are five areas of ministry or five ministries that Christ gave specifically for a particular purpose. To do the work of ministry and build up the body of Christ. Paul is not, when he references these, these five areas of ministry, Paul is not talking about the leadership structure of the church. He says nothing here about um, like, like he does elsewhere about, about elders or the office of an elder who are the overseers of the church. Though functionally, granted, there may be some overlap there and some similarity uh, in function. But these, these, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers are also not to be confused with spiritual gifts as we know them as they're revealed in Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. And it's important to realize that these functions or ministries do not exist for their own sake. They are not given to build crowds, to gain followers, to be liked or to be popular. Gross. They are the means to an end. They are not the end. They are a means to the end. They are given to the church for a specific purpose. Now, here at Collective Church, we've sought to decentralize ministry as much as we possibly can. We do it out of necessity because our staff is not large. Sure, I guess. But we do it because it's our philosophical belief and our biblical belief that that's the way it needs to be. And so we've sought to decentralize ministry and encourage what has been referred to as every member ministry. One of the most obvious ways that that is seen is in the way that we've broken up the West Side into five different ministry regions. And so we've adopted this approach to regional ministry within the, the West Side, where much of the ministry that happens with, at, on, like, to people, the way that we serve one another and carry out the ministry, is with those that live in the region where the need exists. It's carried out by you guys. And then to help 
facilitate that and foster that and handle some of the, you know, the direction and the leadership and administration just to come alongside. We have regional ministry, te- um, regional ministry teams that, that serve in every region. Another way that we have the ability to do the work of the ministry and to serve one another and serve the Lord together is through our discipleship groups. And uh, we seek to disciple one another in light of scripture, of how to live these things out, how to put God's word into practice. And we are engaged in the act of discipling when we are doing that. And if I could call discipling the means by which we become and or continue to grow in as, as followers as, of Jesus. That is the whole point. And if you have God's word and you are his child, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, God can work in you to minister to other people, to build them up, as scripture says. Sometimes it's by giving you something for them in that moment of something that they're going through, whether it's a difficulty that they need to, where you need to come alongside them, or whether it's just something they're just wrestling with and need clarity on, whatever it might be. I trust the Holy Spirit in each one of you to be able to carry out that ministry. And sometimes we think, oh, okay, I'm not a theologian. I didn't go to ministry. Or I didn't go to a seminary. I'm not a professional minister, whatever that means. So I'm going to sit back and I'm going to let you know, the pastors do that. It's not how it works. And while it's appropriate for those that are more mature in their faith, which we'll look at in a second, while it's appropriate for those who are more mature in their faith to serve others, it's not a requirement. And what I mean by that is it is totally possible because the Holy Spirit of God that resides in you that you can build up and equip and minister to someone who is an older Christian than you, whether that's an age or experience. So you go, well, I'm a new Christian. I haven't been at this very long. I, God can't possibly use me. It's like, yes, he can because he gave you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not inept at carrying out his work and empowering you and enabling you and equipping you as a minister of the gospel. There's something in this for all of us, and that's the amazing thing. Another obvious way that we do the work of the ministry is, of course, even like here, our Sunday services. We're still trying, you know, uh, Isaac mentioned this earlier, but we're still trying to get our children's ministry going again. But we need people who are willing to serve our families to help make that happen. But here's something that is so interesting. Spiritual growth comes in part through serving Jesus. I was doing an orientation a couple weeks ago for some of our new volunteers. And one of our volunteers, who I won't name and embarrass this morning, he was saying how there was a season in his life where he was very involved in ministry. And then he took a break from ministry and kind of, he was still a part of the church and all that kind of stuff. And he wasn't struggling in his faith. And it wasn't a situation where he was, you know, str- you know like mad at God or, you know, walking away from the Lord or anything like that. He just took a break. He was tired. 
And then he made the most amazing observation, and he shared this with us. He was saying how I realized that I wasn't growing in the way I was before. There is something about engaging in the Lord's work that helps us to be built up and grow spiritually because that's his calling for us. It's part of our discipleship. It's part of following Jesus. And I love that he actually you know, experienced that. And then as he began to serve again, he started to enrich himself. He started to be more enriched spiritually. And in doing that, guess what he was doing? Because he was serving, he was also enriching and blessing the church. So Paul's pastoral vision for them is that they would walk worthy, maintain their unity, fulfill their ministry, and so that they would, number four, grow in maturity. Look with me at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, there's that word unity again, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children, no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The imagery here is so interesting. We would no longer be children, implying obvious immaturity. Um, Tossed to and fro by the waves. This idea and this image of like a rudderless ship, maybe with no sail, that that is just at the mercy of the forces outside of it. And carried about by every wind of doctrine, like a leaf. The wind blows, and there goes the leaf. We can be like that when we're immature. And then susceptible to human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So that's like, you know, spending the afternoon on Facebook or something. (laughs) The weird stuff that gets posted on there. But with immaturity, this is what we have to understand, with immaturity comes vulnerability. And if we're not mature in our faith, we're, we're vulnerable to being influenced and manipulated. It may happen without us realizing it. Uh, it might happen when there's cultural pressure that is pushing against us and steering us in particular directions. It can come from others, it can come from circumstances, if we're, not, if we're not thoroughly immersed in the scriptures, we'll end up following anything. If we're not thoroughly rooted in God's word, we will just go with whatever. And some of us are more shaped by culture and our own ideology and our own sense of morality than we are the word of God. How weird is that? I mean, it makes total sense in the sense that these are powerful forces that push and pull against us. But as followers of Jesus, we've been given the word of God. How is it that we are being shaped and molded and discipled by these other things more than God's word? And so where this leads, this leads us down a path to confusion at best or apostasy at worst. We can have this 
false assurance that we are actually following Jesus because we claim to be a Christian. I mean, have you ever noticed how common and how, how, um, how frequent that happens? Oh, I'm a Christian. And it might be someone that you know who's, who's saying that because you, they know you identify as a follower of Jesus. Like, oh, yeah, me too. I'm a Christian. But you know them. It's like, wait a minute, I'm not judging you or anything. But no, you're not. Like, it doesn't mean anything anymore in our culture to be a Christian. What is happening? We're immature. That's what's happening. And there's no substance. It's like the, did you guys hear about this? There was a sculpture that was sold last week by, I believe, an Italian sculptor for over $18,000, and the sculpture was invisible. <laughs> Google it. I'm not kidding. I want to do that, right? <laughs> I want to know how to be such a good sculptor that I can sculpt an invisible sculpture and sell it, selling it, for, sell it for 18 grand. But like that sculpture that apparently is worth 18 grand, there's no substance. We can lack substance because we're not rooted and grounded in the word of God. As a church, we want to see people engage in the word of God, rooted and grounded in the word of God. The biblical illiteracy in the American church is astounding. And then there's been, um, there's been these uh, significant studies, large-scale studies that have been done that uh, showed and revealed that the number one correlative factor to people growing in their relationship with Jesus was regularly engaging the word of God with others. And so we have, we practice integrated Bible study. And what that means is uh, we engage scripture in three different ways. We do, uh, we sort of go through a process of personal study in a particular passage, and we put that out through our social media and our website every week. It's the weekly Bible passage that we are studying and preparing in advance for Sunday. On Sunday, that same passage is preached on, so I hope you all did your study last week, right, for this Sunday. And then as we sort of are beginning to understand from our personal study and from the preached word how God is speaking to our hearts and how he's challenging us and what he wants to shape and mold in our lives, what needs to change, how he's comforting us, how he's reminding us of his truth in his word, we then take that into a third context, which is our discipleship groups, where we are working that out in community. What are the ramifications of these things? How do we apply these things to our lives? And so, like, you know, we're, we're seeking to, to, to glean from the best of these three worlds of personal study, the preached word, and then working it out in community so that we can be collectively moving along together in tune with how the Spirit is speaking to and guiding our church. So Paul wants to see them grow in maturity, but here's, here's the thing. And I think we need to understand this. Immaturity is okay. It's okay for as long as you're a child. Immaturity is okay for as long as you're a child. But the hope is that, and Paul's hope, is that we would grow up into maturity eventually. 
That's the goal. You know, when I take my kids to the doctor, the very first thing that happens is they, they put the kids up on the thing and they take their weight and they, they measure their height. And um, it's the very first thing they do. No matter what you're there for, that's what they do with kids, apparently. Um, now, I'm six feet tall. But after they measure my kid's height, the doctor doesn't pull me aside and say, you know, this is really kind of weird, but your kid is so short. <laughs> Why? Because they're supposed to be short. They're nine and they're six. They're not 46 going on 47 and six feet tall like their dad. But what's happening there is the doctor is, 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 is not comparing my kids to me, a grown man. The doctor compares my children's development to what it was previously, the last time they were there, right? How have they grown, right? How are they gaining weight? And they're com he's comparing it to what is appropriate for their age and their expected rate of growth and development, and it's through that, that that their height and their weight, just those two metrics, two metrics, they are health indicators. And if they were, if their if their growth and if their development was stunted or slowed down, compared to where it needs to be, it's a red flag. It's an indicator that there's a problem. Something is wrong. And so, too, with believers. As followers of Jesus, there should be a trajectory that we're on towards maturity. And when that process gets stunted and stalled out, something is wrong. It's okay to be immature for as long as you're a child. It's not okay to be mature when you've grown up, so to speak. We see the author of Hebrews sounding the alarm about this in a spiritual sense in Hebrews chapter 5. And it says, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. The writer of Hebrews is saying, you need to be here, but you are here. By now, you should be teachers. And he uses that metaphor that communicates very clearly what's happening. You need milk, not solid food. Do you give a newborn baby solid food? Nope. In case you didn't know, you don't do that. That's not good. You give a newborn baby milk. So in whatever stage of growth and development we're in, there's some questions that we need to be asking ourselves. There's sort of a, a self-assessment that we need to put ourselves through. Asking questions like, how long have I been in this stage, this stage of development? How long have I been spiritually where I'm at now? Is there evidence? Is there any evidence that I'm growing? If not, why not? How does my level of spiritual maturity compare with where I should be at this point? 
I mean, there have been times where I've been in ministry for 22 years, I think more than 22 years, um, and there have been times where people have come up to me and who were older and who I knew to be sort of like pillars in the church, not this church, another church where I, I used to serve, and, and I would be looking forward to the conversations about what I can learn from them or, you know, um, hearing from other pastors and, and seeking their counsel and their wisdom. And there have been times where stuff comes out of their mouth, and I'm just like, what? And I'm so, I would be so bummed in that moment. Because at that time, I'm just a young guy, and what do I know? But you're so off base. I remember one old school preacher, he heard me preach, and he came up to me afterwards. I was so looking forward to his feedback, and what he, what, you know, what he was going to help me grow as a preacher. And he's like, now Lorenzo. He says, you got pretty vulnerable up there, and you were very transparent. I'm like, oh, okay. And I'm thinking, I guess that's a good thing, right? He's like, but you got to be careful. And he basically chastised me, saying that I needed to put up a show and put on a front because people needed to respect the office. I was like, oh, my goodness. Really? Even I know what's wrong with that. But where should we be spiritually? And where are we at right now? We should all be growing spiritually and be concerned if we're not. And here's the thing. We're not called to perfection. We're called to progression. The way you used to be is not who you are now. And who you are now is not who you're going to be. We need to keep growing. And throughout the process, I can help you and you can help me. And together we can grow in maturity. We need one another. That's specifically how God designed it. Look at, if, look at the, verse 15. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole, bo the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so here we see the interconnected nature of the members of the body. And maybe you've had that experience where maybe you had an injured leg and began to limp. And then over time, you start to have pain in your other hip and in your other leg because you're overcompensating. And it was now doing damage over here. Or maybe you've had a headache that came a, a result of like tension in your neck or something like that. Like the, the, the body, the members of the body play off one another and affect one another. And they are interconnected. Each part of the body matters. We need one another, and we need one another to function as designed. I have a, I have a heart problem, and the number one, you know, the, the biggest um, indicator to me that something is wrong, I don't feel it in my chest. I feel it in my head. I feel it in my eyeballs. I started getting lightheaded. I started to get tunnel vision. That's how I know something's wrong here. It has nothing to do with my head, but oxygenated blood is not reaching my brain. And if you want to know what my issues are, maybe that's it. I don't know. <laughs> but what's happening here affects me here, just like what's happening here affects there. 
One part of the body affects the whole. And if we can function as designed, and if each part of the body can function as designed, the body as a whole can function in a healthy way as designed. Like how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul's writing to, this is one of his other letters to the, the church in Corinth. And he says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, what would, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. That can't happen. We need one another. The parts of the body exist for the sake of the body. Each member of the body has a role to play in enabling the body to function as the complex and interdependent entity that it is. Following Jesus is a team sport. We need one another. We are in this together. And that's why I'm so excited that mission, uh, that mission membership is opening up again. This is Paul's pastoral vision for the church. Number one, walk worthy. Number two, maintain their unity. Number three, fulfill their ministry. And number four, grow in maturity. Why? What's the big deal? Who cares if I'm supposed to be beyond where I'm at right now? What's the big deal? Because you're a member of the body. That's the big deal. We need to go through this process. We need to walk worthy maintain our unity, fulfill our ministry, and grow in maturity for the sake of the church, for the sake of the body. It's not about you. We're doing this whole collective again thing, right? It's about us. We call the church collective church. It's not about I and me. It's about us and we. We're in this together for the carrying out of our mission, for fulfilling our calling and walking out our calling. And let's remember that the church is a gospel-made family and it's Christ's reconciling work on the cross that even makes this a thing. This is not somebody's good idea of bringing people together who are religiously like-minded We are made by the gospel. We are accepted by the Father, united by the Spirit, thanks to the work of the Son, who gave his life for us. And then he rose again, proving that this was for real. He who descended has also ascended. And so, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, today can be the day. If you've never received his forgiveness for your sins, today can be the day. You can become a part of the family of God. And if you are already a part of the family of God, I would echo 
Paul's pastoral vision for you and encourage you to walk worthy of your calling, to maintain the unity of the Spirit, fulfill your ministry, and let's grow together in maturity. Let's pray.